the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast, episode 304, entering our seventh year. This is a podcast where we talk about news and politics and sex and religion. And I'm uh, at home and we're doing this zooming in type of podcast. So way over in his home is Joe the Tech Guy and I'll introduce him if he's got his mic on. Joe, how are you going? Evening all. And also with me, friend of the show, an old family friend actually as well, is Rachel from Sydney. Welcome aboard, Rachel. Hi, Trevor. Hi, Joe. Great to be here. So Rachel's going to talk about her decision to, as a young person in Sydney, to take the AstraZeneca vaccine. And we're going to talk about a few other things along those lines and have a bit of a discussion. But before we do, a little bit of sad news in that Paul the 12th man has decided not to keep going with the podcast. So Paul rang me up the other day and said that he felt that the podcast had become quite pro-labor rather than sort of more neutral. So he hadn't really signed up for that. And that short version that he was sort of in the minority on a lot of issues and he didn't feel that we were sort of taking his opinion seriously enough and being a bit dismissive and things like that. So in the end, for the sake of our friendship and everything else, he thought he would just prefer not to keep doing it. And so, so yeah, so that's really sad news. And there's an open invitation for Paul to come back at any time if he feels like making a cameo appearance. And so, yeah, without Paul here, I don't want to really go much more into it. But anyway, that's the story there with Paul. So hopefully you'll see him at meetups and other functions down the track. So, all right, Rachel, friend of the of the podcast in Sydney and you're in lockdown and you're living alone, Rachel. I am, Trevor. Tough times <laughs> down here in lockdown land. <laughs> yeah. So for those listeners out there who are from Melbourne or who have had experience in lockdowns, one of the things I like to hear in the chat tonight is any tips for people in lockdown as to how to keep yourself busy and other, you know, things that you would recommend worked well for you when you were in lockdown in terms of making it easier. So if you've got any, any tips for Rachel about how to deal with a lockdown, let's let's see them in the chat room, please. Maybe you've got a favourite recipe. Can you cook at all, Rachel? Oh, I've got lots to learn, Trevor. So any, any recipes, especially for beginners, very welcome. Okay. So my recommendation, well, you've already started on, on working on your blog. You've always had a, a little personal blog that you've dabbled in and you made a post in it the other day, which was quite well received by a lot of people about your decision to uh, sign up for the AstraZeneca vaccine as a young person. So, Rachel, what were the thought processes going through your mind as, and why did you do it and what were you thinking? Yeah, great question. So I think for me, I really started thinking properly about it, certainly when Sydney's most recent outbreak started taking off, because I was frustrated, like many people, about the speed of the government's vaccine rollout. And I started thinking it's going to be a very long time before I'm eligible for a Pfizer vaccine, because I'm, I've got the good fortune of not having any underlying health conditions. And I'm also, <clears throat> excuse me, in that younger age group. So what I did is that I went on to the Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation, ATAGI's recommendations, and I decided to read for myself exactly what those were. And when I, when I went and looked at it, I found that ATAGI actually had recommendations that weren't quite as black and white as what I had originally thought, based on some of the media coverage that I've read and, and definitely what some of certain politicians had said. Basically, what they've done is that they've modelled the risk and benefit analysis of getting the AstraZeneca vaccine under three different scenarios. The first one is a situation where we have very, very low community transmission, which is 
obviously the environment that most of Australia has enjoyed for the past 18 months. And in that scenario, it does make sense when you look at the risk of getting one of these extremely rare blood clots versus being hospitalised or put into ICU or unfortunately dying from COVID, you are actually at a higher risk of getting one of the blood clots if you're in those younger age groups. But what I found really interesting is that they'd also modelled two other scenarios which was a second, a sort of a moderate scenario, excuse me, that was similar to Melbourne's second wave and also a very high transmission scenario similar to what Europe experienced in late 2020 and early 2021. And actually under those scenarios, Targi was then recommending that it was the benefit of getting the vaccine was actually higher for all age groups. So that on the risk side sort of, oh, sorry, excuse me, on the cost benefit sort of analysis started changing my mind about what, what might be what might be important yeah yeah i just i i applaud you rachel for actually reading it all <laughs> i wonder how many people i mean you tend to take these things for granted from from the news reports and whatever but it is really good to just read the source material quite often so i know just with a lot of the stuff we talk about here where there's talking about covid and and medical reports and and, you know the representation in the media will be one thing and then when you go and read the report often they're, they're readable enough and you actually get a much better idea of, of the whole thing if you go to the source material. So top marks, Rachel, for doing that. And I put you in a small minority of people who would have done it. So, so that's good. So the, the other choice you mentioned in your blog, you could have tried to maybe wrangle your way into a Pfizer vaccine, but you sort of thought that was not quite ethical, an ethical way to do it. Yeah, that's right. So there's definitely a lot of friends in Sydney who are absolutely keen to get vaccinated and definitely a lot of sort of black market links floating around where if you go to some far-flung vaccination centre after a certain time of day, you can actually get in without having any of the, the current eligibility criteria. But I felt that reading a lot of the coverage about, you know, one third of aged care workers being vaccinated a couple of weeks ago, it wasn't right for someone like me who works in a very low contact job to be taking one of those vaccines. So for me, I really felt that the choice came down to either getting AstraZeneca now or waiting for Pfizer when when my sort of number came up in the national... Just for the record, how old are you, Rachel? I'm 29, so I'm I'm just in the under 30s. I won't be for much longer, but I'm, I'm under 30s. Okay, fair enough. So in your blog, you said, on the risk side, I understand Atagi's recommendations at a population level when statistically... If there are 8 million people in Australia between 18 and 39 and a 2 in 100,000 chance of blood clotting and a 3% chance of dying from that blood clotting, then five people are expected to die. Is, is it sort of as plain as that on the Atagi website? Is it? They don't quite do the numbers for you. That was myself right. multiplying them out. But I imagine that if I was on that panel, that's the calculation I would make and I would find it hard at a, on that recommendation level to feel that, I had, you know, cost five people their lives if, if those statistics came to be. Yeah. So with the with the way of approaching this, I don't know if you listened to my podcast where I was talking about libertarianism, utilitarianism, and a sort of Aristotle approach to this, sort of moral quandaries. But did you listen to that one at all or not? I don't think I did, Trevor. I'm okay. sorry. <laughs> no worries. So, so you know, should a young, as a young person, which choice would you make? And a libertarian approach would be, well, I have the freedom to do whatever I want and whatever's best in my own sort of self-interest. So 
I will make my own calculation and do what's right for me. Whereas a utilitarian approach would be, well, let's look at the overall flourishing and welfare of the entire society. So if for the benefit of everybody, it means we should mandate vaccinations of a certain type on certain people for the overall numbers, then that's the way we should make our laws. And then the third sort of Aristotelian approach would be, well, what sort of society do we really want to live in? And what sort of citizenship do we want to encourage? And what's just the good and right thing to do? That would be sort of the third approach. So seems a little bit to me, given the outbreak in Sydney, I mean, it's bad, but it's not that bad yet. So your personal chances of dying from COVID are very, very low because you're healthy and have no comorbidities or anything like that. So, yep. So you've probably taken on an extra risk. Do you think? Yeah, I think. I mean, it's a tiny risk. And I'm sure that if the calculation was one in a thousand even, Mm. that might have changed my mind. Mm. But that tiny, you know, 3% on two in a hundred thousand is so small that I feel it's an acceptable individual risk to take on to feel that I'm contributing to the third approach, you know, a good society that that does the right yeah. thing. So I think that's I think that's the way you've done it, Rachel. So congratulations and I'm glad to see you survived and you haven't had well, did you have any <laughs> ill effects? Did you I think you did have some, didn't you? I did, I did. So I had been warned by my parents and aunts who'd, who'd gone before me and gotten the AstraZeneca to expect a little bit of sort of fluey side effects in the first 24 hours. So felt completely fine after vaccination, but maybe seven hours later, definitely got a bit of a temperature and sweating and achy back type of thing. But they they were all over within 24 hours. So yeah. it was well worth it. And I, I have to say, I didn't mind getting the day off work. Yeah. Oh, okay. Day off work as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And have any yeah. of your friends of a similar age gone and got it as well? Has anyone made a similar decision? So I haven't come across anyone who's actually gone and gotten it no. now, but I have had a lot of conversations, particularly after publishing the blog, with people who've been thinking about it and a couple of them have gone and booked in the last couple of days. So right. uh, I think I think people are looking more and more at the option. Right. Good on you, Rachel, as part of the older community. <laughs> I appreciate your attempt with the herd immunity. So thank you for that. Hey, Rachel, now you're, I'm going to get you onto some other topics here. Let me just see in the chat, what were the recommendations, Joe? I can't scroll, for some reason, Joe, I can't scroll back through the old messages, but so I can't see what the recommendations were in terms of keeping yourself busy in lockdown. But Rachel, have a look. Carpet, carpet bowls. Carpet bowls. Uh- <laughs> Yeah, learning how to mosaic, learn to play the harmonica, build model kits, play Xbox and read comics. Surely we can do better than this, IFVG audience. Come on. That, that, that's, that's, that's it, it that's right. Okay. So, Rachel, as you know, this podcast originated with a strong push for secularism and a poo-pooing of religious belief. And you grew up as a nice Catholic girl in a, a religious all-girls school. Is that correct? That is correct. Can confirm, Trevor. Yeah. I was baptised and had my first communion confirmed and definitely went to all-girls high, Catholic high yeah. school. So, so as you know, I'm involved with our state school system in trying to be active in relation to religious instruction classes. So I'm curious as to religious instruction classes that you 
like I would have said subject were subjected to, but it was a voluntary experience that your parents put you through. So, so what was religious instruction like for you during your school years, primary and and then secondary? Yeah, so I think at school, from primary school onwards, we would have religion classes as a subject multiple times a week, and it continued into high school. We also had compulsory attendance at mass, anywhere between once a term, but also sometimes up to once a week in in high school. And and I suppose also just within my family, we also attended mass or church every week. So I also got a fair bit of religious instruction through through that community setting as well. And and in. Yeah. So there's not much religious instruction taking place in state schools in the in the higher years, and I suspect that's because the instructors would get a hard time from the kids pushing back on the ideas. So was there a, any pushback by you good Catholic girls when the nuns would try to educate you about religious matters? Do anything like that happen? <sighs> I, I think I think to be honest, we were all very used to it by the time and, and sort of sometimes it felt like you've just got to go along with this. But it was interesting that particularly in the later years, they did try and make it a little bit more modern. So I do remember one particular religion lesson in year 10 when the teacher decided that she was getting too many questions from the class, the all girls Catholic class as to why women played such a minor role in the Catholic Church and why we weren't allowed to be priests or the Pope or why we were hearing in all of our other classes how important women were and how important women's rights were and then it wasn't reflected in the Catholic (laughs) Church. So she actually sent us an an assignment to read through and try and identify some Bible passages that demonstrated that, in fact, women were very valued in the Catholic Church. So we had quite a lot about Mary Magdalene in our in our high school years, right. lost over the fact that she was a prostitute which, or a sex worker in today's lingo, yeah. which which I'm sure wasn't approved of by our teachers, but but they tried. Right. So the best example of female empowerment in the Bible was Mary Magdalene. Was that right? Correct. Right. That's it. You've got Mary, mother of Jesus, or Mary Magdalene. That's right. Because I remember we did something about, I mean, when you think about it, Mary had no ability to consent to the task she was undertaking in being the mother of the Son of God. Like nobody asked her and said, are you up for this? Really? <laughs> it was a pretty non-consensual no. arrangement, wasn't it? Did they ever mention that? <laughs> <laughs> that was definitely not mentioned. <laughs> but an excellent point. Right. <laughs> I wish I'd known that when I was 16. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Okay, what else have I got here for you, Rachel? Let me just see. I think I had. Oh, and one of your other claims to fame is you suffer. I don't know if that's the word to use or you have a characteristic of face blindness. Would you like to explain what that is? I would love to. So I I have to admit I have diagnosed myself with this condition. I've never actually gotten a medical diagnosis, but there are a lot of people around the world that claim to have face blindness or prosopagnosia which basically means that you have a lot of trouble recognising faces and remembering people. And I think I have a fairly mild form of it in that I would recognise you, Trevor, but for people that I've only met maybe five times or less, I I do struggle to recognise them, especially out of context. And it's gotten me into trouble a few times in the past. Yes, you had an incident overseas. Can you explain that one? I will. So I I was working in Malaysia for a few months a couple of years ago, and one day I well, one weekend I decided to take myself off for a little a little holiday, 
and I went to a tourist town in Malaysia called Malacca. And when I was there, I thought, oh, I really need to make some friends. You know, I'm a bit lonely working in Malaysia. I'll stay in a hostel and I'll, I'll try and make a new friend for the weekend. It'll be good. So I turn up at the hostel and I meet this really nice girl who's checking in at the same time as me. And I thought, oh, great. You know, we can probably hang out together this weekend. So we skipped off together and, and went off to visit a couple of the local restaurants. But unfortunately, as we walked towards one of the restaurants, she I found that she was quite annoying. And I, I sort of wanted to get rid of her because she was being very needy and clingy. And I was just thinking, oh, I might have misjudged this person early on. So I sort of left and said, I'll, I'll, I'll meet you later on, I'll meet you later on. A couple of hours later, I, I went into the night market, which is one of the features of Malacca. And I came across the same girl and I said, oh, I finally found you, you know, I've been looking for you. And she goes, oh, yeah, I've been looking for you as well. And we walked around together for a couple of hours and I was thinking, oh, she's not very friendly. She's not sort of how she was before. Maybe I've really upset her because I've, I've gone off and ditched her and maybe she's really angry with me, only to discover as we as we asked a couple of questions about, you know, how we were going to spend the rest of our time in Malacca, that she was a completely <laughs> different person. And I had, I, I had mistaken her for my hostel friend and she had mistaken me for some <laughs> hostel friend of her own. So... Both, both of us had a bit of a problem with face blindness, I would say, on that occasion. <laughs> oh, Rachel. Well, can I put a link to your blog in the show notes? Are you happy? Yep. So if you want to read about that, if you want to read about that story or any of Rachel's it. other stories, then hop onto the blog and have a look. Hey, um, in the chat room, Paul Waper, if you can try and click on that link and and get into the green room, Paul, and we'll be ready for you soon. So, and Rachel, what else was I going to say? Oh, and Rachel also, actually, I'll put another link in as well about a different blog. And this is my own personal travel blog, Trevor and Zena Blogspot. And, and you'll see Rachel features in there because when my wife and I went to France in the days when you could travel, Rachel just happened to be going at the same time for, for uh, university and just happened to speak French. And so we arrived in, in Paris and Rachel was our own personal sort of tour guide speaking French for us for a couple of days. So there's stories about Rachel there in that travel blog. So, so uh, people can read that as well if they like. So, yeah. So, Rachel, thanks for sharing everything about AstraZeneca and your experience. Good on you for just doing the right thing. Glad to see it hasn't come back with any consequences of any sort. So, cheers and join us again another time. I'll sing out to you when we need the opinion of a, of a 30-something in Sydney. Yep. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you, Trevor. It's been great Bye. to be here. Thanks for having me. See you Bye. later. Bye. So that was Rachel and we're going to somehow, oh. Rachel's gone. Yes, good on you. Joe's working feverishly in the tech room. <laughs> and now. Thanks to the welcome marvellous aboard, work of Joe. Paul. Yeah, Paul Waper, welcome aboard, Paul. Hey. You've been on before, but welcome back again. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah. So dear listener, Paul has been a regular listener for years and when he comes to Brisbane, we catch up and have a bite to eat and and exchange ideas. So over the years, Paul, one of the topics, we can cover any number of topics that you want to tonight. It's all open. But one of the topics we've talked about is dark emu over time. And you really, I, I gather you sort of thought, Trevor seems like such a nice, sensible guy. Why has he got it in for dark emu? Is, is that a fair summary of it? No, I... 
I can understand. So I understand your criticisms and I'm with you. I'm not an expert enough to judge whether, you know, how much of that is true, what the claims and counterclaims are. But I'm interested, what I was really interested there is trying to work out, yeah, there, there are some commentators that are, have been, you know, they, when it first came out, they dismissed Dark Emu because, you know, Bruce Pascoe isn't really an Aboriginal person or, you know, this is just another attempt at legitimising the, you know, the lives of us you know, Aboriginal people or, you know, something like that. That's sort of an Andrew Bolt sort of it, view. Is that what you're thinking yeah, of in your mind? Who are, right. who were criticising him just because it was anything that they could latch their hands on. You know, this is proof that, you know, the lefties are out there to take our land away from us or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you're coming from, as I understand it, a different approach, which is if we're going to make any progress on reconciliation, it has to be with truth. We can't have, say, Aboriginal people claiming that they had an entire uh, globe-spanning empire or that they discovered China Mm. or, you know, I'm just making stuff up here, but those Mm. would be, we would look at those and say, no, those are invalid claims. There's no factual basis for it. And so when someone comes along, I think your argument about Dark Emu is that when someone comes along and these arguments seem to not have a lot of factual basis, it undermines that idea that we are coming to understand the Aboriginal people better and, as Australians, understand us ourselves better. Is that a summary? Yeah, and, and, it, and well, it affects the credibility. When somebody is misrepresenting about something, then you start to question everything that they say. Mm. So it's like news, you know, articles in The Spectator. I mean, that they misrepresent so much they just can't trust anything mm. after a while. And so often, for example, we will have, I think I gave you the example in an email of Indigenous people might make a claim about their attachment to climbing Mount Warning and whether you know, the practices that have been going on there or about sacred trees and about freeways that might knock those over. Yep. And if if Indigenous leaders have been demonstrated to be misrepresenting stuff, then that will cast doubt on what might be legitimate claims where people will go, well, is, just, is this just another beat-up? Is this just more more lies essentially yeah. it's not good for your credibility to to accept these sorts of things because it then casts doubt on things that might be legitimate so that's one reason why i think yeah okay no i'm i'm with you yep that i guess seems to me to be a bit of a i don't know throw the whole throw the baby out with the bath bathwater kind of approach though and I can understand that mm. someone like Andrew Bolt would take that approach because, you know, now you've got one person that we can point to and say, look, an Aboriginal person or a person that claims to be Aboriginal that was caught out and therefore everything they say is wrong. But I, but I don't, I think a lot of, you know, 
our approach to everything else and the news, mm. you know, even COVID vaccine news has been some some bits are true, some bits are false. We have to sift it all out, out ourselves. Yeah, so if you, you know, if, if you saw a COVID report of some sort and it was wrong about something, you'd want that to be known. Like if whatever the issue might be, blood, blood clotting or infection rates or death rates or mortality rates or things, sure. you'd be... You'd be keen to, to for example, identify a mistruth, but still be in favour of a whole bunch of things. But to be able to say, well, actually, on this particular point, that's not right. Sure, but I'm still in favour of all these other things. But to take that example, if we imagine that we went back to something Norman Swan said in March 2020, mm. which was based on the best evidence that we had at the time and turned out not to be mm. true based on later evidence. And yeah. we then said, oh, well, Norman Tr- Norman Swan can't be trusted because of that one thing that he said there, which was yeah. disproved. Then I think we'd be yeah. doing ourselves a big disservice because overall Norman Swan has been very yeah. reliable, right? Exactly. But Norman Swan was acting on the advice at the time yeah. and he could say, well, here's the reports I was getting and here's how I came to this conclusion. Sure. Whereas the problem with Pasco is he has clearly grabbed and created a fiction from things and he hasn't been honest in his, in his use of explorers' accounts and, and his, his research. Okay. He hasn't... He, 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 we could, with him, we could say you weren't honest when you were looking at that, intellectually at least. You were not intellectually honest in the way you presented that material. But we're now, on the other hand, believing the Aboriginal experts that are coming out and saying we have evidence that is different here that also shows that Aboriginal people have a rich culture, they have a lot of knowledge, they have an equal claim to the land, right? Yeah, 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 yep, absolutely. So they're quite positive about Indigenous life. Yeah, yeah. And And they're just saying... And so what I guess my thesis here is that, okay, Mm. Bruce Pascoe, the experts can now disagree or agree to disagree or, you know, have different, different opinions, but what it's done is change the narrative in the public to to really introduce a much larger awareness of the the an acceptance of the fact that aboriginal people had this large rich tradition what form it takes we're going to have a big argument between bruce pascoe on the one hand trying to cite particular sources and other people citing other particular sources but we're no longer it, it looks to me like the Andrew Bolts of the world have not no longer arguing that the Aboriginal people have no culture. It's it sounds a little bit to me like you're saying somebody presenting something that's wrong is providing a service because it's opening up the debate. And we now have uh, a debate that we didn't have before. And yep. to me, that's like we should be grateful for anti-vaxxers because we're now having a debate about whether vaccines are good or not. So uh, you're... To, me, to me, it's kind of 
it, 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 some of this stuff just isn't a matter of opinion. It's really about it's about fact, yeah. and and to me, well, it's because the problem. Yeah. The like, I would agree with you there that we should be basing our approach to Aboriginal the Aboriginal people. Aboriginal, you know, Aboriginal process of reconciliation, the Eurostatement from the heart, the, you know, Aboriginal justice, deaths in custody, all of that sort of stuff from the point of view of the facts. Mm. But the problem that I see in the public debate has been that so much of it has ignored all facts that disagree with Andrew Bolt's particular opinion and Andrew Bolt picks the one little cherry-picked fact or factoid or made-up story or complete lie mm. and runs with it. And what's happened is that that's changed. Pasco, and okay, I, I'm, not, I'm not willing to say, I, I'm not willing to say that everything he's written is wrong there. I would agree with you that. I'm not, I'm not, saying, every, yeah. I'm not saying everything okay. is wrong. Yep. But 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 the, but the the basic concept of dark emu is wrong. The 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 shift that dark emu creates about indigenous history as as an, an a proto agricultural society is just plain wrong. And so, what if the, that is not the fault of Bruce Pascoe, but the original observers? Well, Pasco was relying on white people's description yeah. of what they saw, not trained, not he, trained anthropologists, cor- just correct, settlers. right? Correct. Yeah. So a big mistake yeah. to to view indigenous life through a white man's eyes. Like, of course, white men are going to describe a group of huts more likely as a village. And so that was part of the major flaw of PASCO was to rely on white people's interpretation of Indigenous life and to ignore, and this is what the the book does that criticises him, is to ignore the accounts of the Indigenous people themselves and white people who actually lived with Indigenous people. For, there was a few different, Buckley, I think, was one of them that's mentioned, who okay. actually spent a long time living like, I don't know if he's an escaped convict or whatever he was, mm. but lived for 25 years I've or something with Indigenous culture. I've heard of a couple of shipwrecked people so, yeah. that had lived with them. Yeah, and there, was a, and there was a guy in a similar that, experience. Bottom, so, yeah. so that's one French of the major criticisms of, yeah, yes. So... That was one of the major criticisms of Pascoe's approach was that he, he imagine, um, just stop and think where his, his approach was to, to try and explain Indigenous life through the eyes of, of white settlers well, as they rode on horseback through the country. Um, yeah, okay. So two points there. One is that nothing else had worked so far. Why well, not? Well, no. What, what do you mean nothing had worked? Uh, the 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 process of you know reconciling you know and listening to people to, to the Aboriginal people had that you know we didn't have Andrew Bolt 
saying, no, well, no. I read this settler's account when, when you, and, and therefore you mean, no. they're okay people. But what do you mean nothing else had worked up until that point? What, what does that mean? That seems to be saying there was some problem which hadn't been addressed. Well, I guess what I'm, what I'm seeing is the origin, and I think Bruce Pascoe has stated this, the origin of Dark Emu was essentially to say, well, if... You know, if the critics of the Aboriginal people won't believe the Aboriginal accounts of their culture and won't believe the, you know, the the stories that the Aboriginal people tell, then why why not present them with the documentary evidence from white settlers and so you and I are differing yeah, basically yeah, but... here on the question of whether Bruce Pascoe then says, and everything these people say in these journals is the literal truth. I think that's your view. Um, and mine is kind of, I don't think Bruce Pascoe is claiming that everything they said is literally true, but he is making the point that there is these people are seeing stuff that is not the the naysayers' view of the Aboriginal people as essentially having no artefacts, no civilization, no culture, no nothing. They're just wandering around occasionally picking fruit from trees. And I think one of the crikey articles you mentioned sort of makes that critique as if they're sort of you know, wandering through the bush looking for that lost sandwich that they, you know, they accidentally put down somewhere. Well, well that, that, that's Pasco's. So what Pasco says is that, that Indigenous people have been painted as mere hunter-gatherers and unsophisticated is, is what he's said. Yeah. And, and I think when you're saying nothing else fixed it, what you're missing is that actually... Our knowledge of Indigenous history was good. Like we, we knew how Indigenous people lived and behaved and, and their customs and their... Now, that's all there in academic uh, papers and for anybody who wants to look and actually find it, but there wasn't a popular version of it, if you like, and, and Pascoe's background is actually as a fiction writer, so... He was able to create a a popular version of of Indigenous history. The only problem is it was a fictional version. So, so, so when I just want to get mm. back to this because it's important. Yep. We say nothing had fixed it up until then. Pascoe's view was that there had been a misrepresentation and not a a genuine appreciation of this wonderful civilization. And the criticism from Sutton and Walsh and others is he totally misunderstands. The, the wealth of knowledge about Indigenous history and that, in fact, Indigenous culture and its spirituality and, and all of its uh, complexity was actually applauded and, and known, but Pascoe just didn't like that. And he I don't know. was I don't taking know a... If it no, no, and that Pascoe, because... In the way because he, that... The... Well, it was known academically, and, and I, this is what we're getting yeah, to. Yeah, this is where I is, have the, the. I think this is where 
we you know it, yes the academics might agree and yes the aboriginal people yes. might agree but no yes. i'm wondering whether the majority of australians would agree of course not no of, of course not but the knowledge was there and unfortunately pasco applied his white man's value system and felt an <laughs> insult no 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 this, I, and this isn't because I'm saying he's a white man. I'm saying he applied a white man's value system. This is at the heart it, of the criticism of Pascoe's book by Sutton and Walsh, yeah, I, is, I, that, and I get, is that he did not look at Indigenous history is that, as an Indigenous person. I, he did not apply the value system of Indigenous people because they didn't value what, what Pascoe marvelled at. They didn't value that at all. He would he would imposed this have the a same would would your objection be the same if Pascoe wasn't claiming to be Aboriginal? It makes no difference because it is Then why does it the, matter whether he was white or not? No, I didn't say he was. I said he imposed You're, white man's values. So it doesn't right. matter whether he's black or white, he's used a white man's value system. Of valuing uh, telling... technology. Okay, sorry. Like a black man, a black man can adopt uh, a white man's philosophy. Like we see it all the time. Sure. In so it doesn't matter whether he's white well, or black. Okay. It's what is the value system that he applied, and was it? And and this is the whole point. Hasco actually misses the point of what Indigenous people valued, and he 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 himself clearly values a sophisticated agricultural society because he tried wherever he could to find that and he was quite derogatory. He often used the term mere hunter-gatherers mm, as if yeah. that was a put-down of, of something that... It's his words, his description. He's angry that Indigenous people were described as mere hunter-gatherers. So... So that's a white man's value system. That's a white value system, mm -hmm. Western value system. If you're telling stories that, to white that wouldn't men, come, isn't a good idea uh, to use their value system. If you're telling a story about Indigenous people, no. If you're telling a story about how Indigenous people valued and operated, you can't use a white man's value system to explain Indigenous life. You, you don't say to... But you aren't don't we make doing up, that with the kind of noble hunter-gatherer thing? Like just calling them noble, well, that's the that's a sort of hark back to the noble savage idea. Well, well, I'm not calling them the noble savage. So, but I'm just saying that he, he poo-poos the hunter-gatherer lifestyle. He clearly does in Dark Emu. And yeah. do, do you agree with that at least? Do you, do you see him as denigrating a mere hunter-gatherer lifestyle and, I can, I, yeah, and accentuating I would, that sort of feeling? Okay, and what I would say there is I think he is writing that view to appeal to a mainstream audience because he needs people's buy-in. Now, okay. I, I agree. I, I agree. Whether, he, whether he or not that's his literal view of... You know that, like I'm. I don't know Bruce Pascoe's sort of 
other literary output. I don't. I've I've yeah. heard one seven a.m. interview with him, so I'm not. Yeah. I don't I feel I'm not qualified to say what is what's his what his intent and mental state was, but I guess, yeah, you know, like I, I I would still agree that he's he is putting across in Dark Emu the idea that it it, it is you know these people were not mere hunter gatherers that they were also doing this other sophisticated system of agriculture. And I think the only difference that we might have on, on that may really be, did it include both? Or is Pasco simply claiming only they did not do any help hunting or gathering? Because that's clearly false. No. All right. No, no, he's not suggesting that. Okay. But it's the whole, it's the whole idea that... Indigenous people were sophisticated and that is proved by the evidence that he invents of an agricultural sort of society. And really, Indigenous people would be quite rightly say, what the F? Like what, what is so unsophisticated about the lifestyle that we had? How dare and, you say mere hunter-gatherer? Yeah. And lots lots of Indigenous people, like I was quickly, so I sent you some articles yep. and, and like there's a mountain of them, so yep. I don't expect you to have read them. But So Crikey is a left-wing progressive yep. news service for sure. Yep. And they've really come out with a series of articles and there's more to come, obviously, where they've really basically said, you know what, Pasco was wrong. And what happened on the progressive side that nothing was said to question what he did? And basically in the crikey articles, yeah, and the crikey articles. takes time too, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but I thought. Darkeem, you took a couple of years to write. I, I would expect that someone who wanted to write the book, the book that rebutted Darkeem, you would also want to mm. gather all their facts and get the interviews and do the research. So I don't, yeah. like, well, I'm, I'm well, still, what? you know, where, I, where yeah. I would say, like, I think when, yeah. I'm fairly sure I recall when Dark Emu came out, there being mm. a sort of regular frothing from, at the foaming at the mouth from the usual Andrew Bolt and. Yeah, from the right, from the but right. not from the left. Sure. From the right and the left were and, yeah, silent. Okay, because it fits the and, left and actually, right? Yeah, and and this is the criticism. Yeah, is that there was enough smoke there that the left could have undertaken some sceptical investigation of what was going on, yep. but didn't. And I do remember and your really, your research on the miles of stooped grain quote, which yeah, I thought was interesting. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And there there really was plenty of smoke there that, that people would go, ooh, there's hang surely on a there's some that fire doesn't look right. Somewhere. Okay. Yeah. Y- yeah. And and so so yeah, I think it's just interesting that Crikey magazine is really coming out with quite a number of articles looking at this and, and now quoting some well known indigenous commentators like Stan Grant, for example, who's been quite critical of Dark Emu and 
Nigel Mansell as well. I mean, we touched a little bit on. Are you meaning his... the racing Formula One driver or something? No, sorry, not Nigel. Michael Mansell. Sorry, showing my age there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mike, Michael Mansell, right. chair of the Aboriginal Land Council of Tasmania, lawyer right. and long-term activist for Ab- Aboriginal rights. Yeah, yep. Yeah. So he supplied the following statement to Crikey. One of the key demands from the 2017 Uluru Gathering was the need for truth-telling. Truth, of course, can often be as elusive as it is desirable, Mm. often judged by personal cultural experience, a bit like beauty being in the eye of their beholder. But many facts are verifiable, a point that has haunted Bruce Pascoe since he made his claim. Mm -hmm. So he, and his, I'll just go on. When Pascoe Starkimu hit book stands, his sympathetic view of Aboriginal life struck a chord with many well-meaning people. And he says of Sutton and Walsh, this is still Michael Mansell, they rightly point out that Aborigines do not have to act like white people. And he then goes on to make, he is made a claim that about Pascoe not being Indigenous. And for, for me, it doesn't really matter mm. whether mm. he is Indigenous or not. He, he definitely applied a white man's sort of value system, which his, I've read both books, Dark Emu and This Criticism, mm. And I can uh, easily say that I actually walked away from the second book, The Criticism, with a far better appreciation, respect and wonder, and sense of wonder at Indigenous life mm. than I did from Pascoe's. Okay. So he didn't have to dress it up with a white man's value system to communicate to white people. It just had to be explained the value system of Indigenous people and how how they viewed view the world, and I'm empathetic enough that I can then put myself in the shoes of the Indigenous person and go, oh, hmm. I get it. Like the story I told about the people purposefully probably not choosing to construct canoes because it then meant that they had to construct a myth system to explain why they now had a canoe. Like that to me was quite Astounding and very interesting and very enlightening. So Hmm. things like that which came out in the criticism are far more telling than than telling lies. Yeah, and I would agree, like it would have, let's propose that Dark Emu gets forgotten and the other books that come out trying to set the record straight are actually the better books and and. Those are the ones that end up being the curriculum texts and everyone, you know, little old ladies in reading groups read and all that sort of stuff. What I'm still wondering here, and this is, listen to Stan Grant on giving the a lecture. It was on big ideas. I can't remember what particular lecture it was, but it was really powerful because Stan Grant's been reporting on, you know, all over the place, China, Middle East, watching some really horrific things happen to people and, you know, probably reflecting as an Aboriginal man of all on all of the horrible things that had happened to his ancestors and, and you know, his his people in the past. And he asks in that, how much do we need to, how much should we celebrate history and how much should we basically leave it in the past? Because yeah. that that can, and 
me as I know what does he put, a, sorry what would he yeah. be suggesting we sorry say that again how much we we so, know about history and how much we forget is it, that well so part of what he's talking about is that he's seen the way that in the Middle East the feuds between families and the feuds between sects and the feuds between you know tribes are these thousands of years long things that we can never ever forget them we'll never ever let those people get away with it again we're going to punish them we're going to keep punishing them for what they did 450 years ago or whatever right and it's a recipe for disaster it's a recipe for for destruction because guess what the other people don't say oh well let's let's let them do it they say no we're going to hit them first and that sort of stuff and yeah you know and i keep on thinking of martin luther luther king saying you know hate cannot drive out hate only love can do that and saying you we have to forget so this is sort of stan grant was basically saying we have to forget those injustices. We have to move on from them. We can say they happened. That's part of the truth-telling that we have to say we, you need, you know, white people need to acknowledge that these things happened. Mm. And then we need to let them be in the past and work together to be a unified people. And that's the yeah. problem that I have. I mean, I'm a neophile. I like the new, I like progress. And to me, the idea that we can't, we know what a canoe is. We know what it looks like. We would know how to build one, but we don't because we don't have the right construction in our stories to allow it. It's like, okay, I'm just going to make up a new story. <laughs> um, yeah. So, but you can appreciate that the Indigenous people couldn't do that. That is where personally I struggle, but I can understand right. that there are people that have that culture and, and value system and they say, okay, that, that's, that's out for us. But yep. it does then make me wonder how much those people, like, like it or not, we're in 2021. We're not in before 1788. We're not before the first Dutch landings in Western Australia in the 1600s. You know, we we can't do see, those yeah. things. We can't mm. pretend they never happened and go back to a life where Aboriginal people just keep on living the way they used to. Right. Yeah, but I'm not suggesting that. No, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not, not saying you are, but it's worrying. So you can criticise Dark Emu and not fall foul of any of Stan Grant's wishes. Yeah, sure. And, in fact, in fact, this is the importance of getting the history right because if you want to move on, it requires a better understanding of what happened. So, for example, if you took the... Pasco view of of how the world operates that you start off as hunter gatherers and inexorably move at some point to being agriculturalists and if you take his view that in fact indigenous people were on that pathway then you could take the view well if they're already beginning agriculture what was their problem when white men arrived 
with even better agricultural techniques and a means of, of producing lots of food, what was their problem? Why didn't they adopt these things and assimilate? Mm. If you take the PASCO view, you would look at it that way. But if you take the understanding that, no, these were very nomadic people, they had not entered into this sedentary lifestyle. In fact, it was completely contrary to their spirit. Mm. Then, then when you look at the arrival of white men into their society, you go, this just wasn't an acceleration of a process that was going to happen anyway. This was a total disruption and rupture of what they were doing. Sure. So you actually get a greater sense of sympathy for the Indigenous people yeah. if you understand that. I, so PASCO... Thought, though we had agreed that PASCO wasn't saying they were exclusively farmers. No, I'm not saying they were. He was right. saying they were on the path to an agricultural sedentary lifestyle. He was saying that's a sign of civilising of people, this is what happens, and they had begun a proto-agricultural society. So he's saying they were moving towards an agricultural society and some parts of them he was trying to paint a picture had become quite agricultural. And that's mm. just not the case. And therefore you get even more sympathy for them when you recognise that, that that wasn't possible and they couldn't assimilate as you might otherwise think they should have. You don't see that sort of argument? I, you don't I see the... No, I see the argument and I see the problem and I agree with you there, but then I find myself asking, well, what, you know, the thing that I think about from the Uluru Statement of the Heart is that it's not asking us to go back to those ways. It's not asking for the Aboriginal people to be left, left alone. It's asking simply for Australians, Aboriginal, Western, you know, Chinese, okay. wherever, yep. to be, to walk together sort of into the future. And, uh, and I feel it, like it, a, a view that says... Is it? Well... Maybe that's my that's my reading of the last part of it. So. Okay, before we before we get head into the weeds on Uluru yeah. and the whole okay. reconciliation question, let's just finish a little bit on Pasco and this stuff. Sure. So, just a couple of other concepts I want to get out. You mentioned Stan Grant. So, Stan Grant, journalist and author on Indigenous affairs, Stan Grant has weighed into the debate, describing Pasco as a quote conjurer who, quote, invites people to disbelieve their eyes. Quote, okay. the white man vanishes and behold, the black man appears, Grant wrote. It doesn't work on Aboriginal people. We've seen it before. He seeks and receives in some quarters. A black imprimatur, but he knows he has nothing new to reveal to us. It's all very poetic, Stan. Actually, Stan Grant's an odd one. Stan Grant can write some really good stuff mm. and then he can write some complete shit. But he's a mixed right, bag. Okay. Dan Grant. He's got a very confused mind. Sometimes he's so. So I just want to make the point. He describes Pasco as a, con, as a as a conjurer, yeah, who invites people to disbelieve their eyes. So Stan Grant, Michael Mansell, a bunch of others. The other thing that Crikey makes the point is that one of the big supporters of Pasco was Professor Marcia Langton, 
and she's been quite silent. Mm. So it'll be interesting to see what she says yeah. about yeah. Uh, this in relation to that. But what, why it, here's, here's a thesis. Yeah. Pasco comes out with this book. It paints a picture which he knows will be appeal, or he hopes will be appealing to a white audience because it speaks at a white value level. Yep. And, and while there was plenty of smoke for people to doubt it, people were reluctant to because they see Indigenous people as oppressed and as victims. And so they're really in a sympathetic, empathetic mindset where they feel that to criticise Pascoe's work would have been in some way to insult Indigenous people. It's like there's a victim here and and they can't be criticised at any level. And I think in our email exchange, mm. I might have given the example of the Jews in Israel, for example, that there's a lot of sympathy for what the Jews suffered with the Holocaust. We've got the State of Israel now, which arguably is doing a lot of really nasty stuff, but yes. there's almost a, 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 re, a reaction of we wouldn't want to criticise Israel and Zionism because it can be sort of perhaps be seen as criticising Jewish people. I, I think people I would find agree that with the, that on the Jews in maybe from 1970 to 1990. I'm not sure it's that true mm. now, mm. but I'm I'm still with you on the general thesis. Certainly, from the point of view that with when you have obvious right-wing mouthpieces, like really radical yeah. extreme mouthpieces. Correct. Pieces you'll like you'll get lumped in with them. Then yep. it's, you know, it can be very dangerous to appear even mildly like that. Yes. And that, it, it, I guess, is why I am prepared to offer the charitable view that it's not, it's a bit like the best example that I can think of is the way that some parents will tell their children about Santa Claus, a lie that they know is uh, fake and a lie that they know is going to be found out sooner or later. But the general idea of let's be nice to each other and give people presents for Christmas still appeals, right? And so, okay, what has had to happen is we have had to wait for some of the, maybe the adulation of the left wing, the fury of the right wing to die down so that we can now have the, red, the, the actual debate about the facts and start talking about the Aboriginal people as a nuanced and very varied people across the whole landscape, not exclusively hunter-gatherers, not exclusively farmers, not any one thing homogeneously. Is that, I think the am left, I allowed I think to have a left, charitable view of that? It's a, I don't quite get it. It seems to excuse misinformation. I'm not a Santa Claus person. Uh, uh, look, here's, here's, here's another example from last week where we were talking about that lady who was in charge of Australia, no, Julia, is it Julia Baird? Who was the lady who was the MP who came out oh, and yes, said that, I remember you. that Scott Morrison was like a bullying wallpaper or something like that and talking about her her time in the 
Morrison cabinet and the sexual assault she had suffered in sure. a party room and and how she'd been and and how she basically decided she was going to resign from the party but stay in the parliament and to Rachel Paul her... says Julia Banks. Thank you, Julia. Uh, thank you, Rachel. Yes, Julia Banks. <laughs> and how she was going to pursue her her keen objectives and interests of of female equality and climate change. And I made the comment, "Come on, if you're you're in the Liberal Party, if, yes, yeah, yeah." And in the and in the chat room, I think uh, Declan said something like, "Oh, it looks like victim blaming here." And you see, that's an example where. Okay, Julia was a victim, but that doesn't mean that everything Julia says is above criticism. Sure. And and Indigenous people, victims, but that doesn't mean everything Indigenous people say about Indigenous life can't be criticised. Yep. So that's where people have got to be braver and where the left needed to be more intellectually honest and more consistent, and I think they... I think people abdicated, and part of it is is people. The empathy is a dangerous thing at some point. There's a book by Paul Bloom which talks about empathy, mm-hmm. and and empathy is quite exhausting. And people who empathise and really take on the feelings and emotions of the victim end up doing a disservice for the victim. You need to be able to disassociate and look at things objectively mm. and and uh, and decide things with, with less subjectivity and more objectivity. So, you know, if your son is king hit in King's Cross and then you agitate for, you know, nightclub hours to be changed, you're not necessarily the right person to be deciding those things. And, and people doing the decision-making should be careful how much they empathise and take on. They need to sit back and be more objective in looking at things. So mm. I think the, there's a danger that people have made with Indigenous problems is that they have not been prepared to say, yes, you're a victim, yes, you've had problems. But on this issue and this issue, I don't agree with what your solution is or what some of you have said about your solution. So mm. is that that sort of... Because... I- yeah. Because I'm wondering here if there's a kind of inversion of that logic that says just because Bruce Pascoe has made a book which many people have claimed to be untrue doesn't mean that his motivations were bad. That's true, although although if somebody selectively if somebody selectively quotes it might have been a terrible own goal but (laughs) yeah look when somebody selectively quotes from a a diary and and omits the sentence afterwards which contradicts the proposition then that's really more than just a mistake, an honest mistake. I'd have to say that as you read it, you'd think these are a ten- so these no are intentional. Pasco here, Trev. Uh, <laughs> is no forgiveness for Bruce Pasco. I don't know his personal circumstances or whatever, but I can certainly say that he purposefully left stuff out because. Mm things that were relevant that were side by side in the material he was reading 
he would take the part that suited his argument and leave out the part that didn't suit his argument. And if what and if, what if the he's an alternative view of mm. maybe some of that, which would be that if you're quoting a settler who is unreliable, who may be interested in taking some of that land anyway, and is therefore allow you know the settler might write something that says it's pretty impressive what these Aboriginal people have done, but of course I still get to have the land because you know it's not that. Then I can forgive some a, a choice of you know, quoting the first bit, but not the second. Not if you're trying to paint a true history of Indigenous people. You would then say, oh, well, he's given this other thing, which I discount for these reasons. Mm. But but and it's not intellectually honest. Yeah, well, clearly he is. He's not, he's not <laughs> okay, telling. <yeah. laughs> it's supposed he- to be a historical piece. Like he's supposed to be, this is not meant to be a work of fiction. So well, you know, it can't it, be it wasn't just a, a work a mere... of fiction if he's quoting something. But that's what I mean. It's not meant to be a work of fiction, but it is indeed. When you when you take bits and pieces and you omit relevant things that say a contrary view, it's not being intellectually honest with the reader. I mean, I did... it's like it's like these people who grab one line out of a out of an anti-COVID lockdown report and completely out of context and say that's the that's what the report says and well, when you then read the report it says something else it's that sure. sort of situation yeah okay and and i'm not i'm not defending that i'm just yeah. trying to you know maybe be a devil's advocate um, yeah yeah good <laughs> you know trying to i'm trying to establish a sort of where where we're going to differ, which is on how much we're, you know, what what our interpretation of that selective quoting is, and I think where we're agreeing is is still that some of it's, you know, some of it is quoted, some of it isn't, some of it is story, some of it is things that happened to Pasco himself. He's coloured it, and. Mm. It, you know, as as you said, it's still been able to change the narrative. And what, what, what do you say to the sorry. what What do you say to the indigenous people who are angry with Pasco's book? I, what, I your... think that they probably have a right to be angry. The because you know, and I would certainly say, I don't think anything. I, you know, you could quote every single you know, line of those diaries in meticulous detail and it would still contain zero lines from an Aboriginal person. And those are the stories that are being left out there. And that's why I think, you know, that's that's kind of not the story that Pascoe is trying to tell, the, the view from the Aboriginal side. And so, yes, I no, would say... Well, those... well he's, not, he's, he's not telling the view from the Aboriginal side. He's... Yeah. He, he I, actually I agree. hasn't. Yes, but he. But yeah. I think what we're all what we're also saying is that he's not div- giving a a view of the truth of those claims that the British settlers were making. Tom makes an interesting mm. ask an in- interesting question about the does Dark Evie 
cover the disease that the British brought in and the mass poisonings and the shootings and well, I'm adding the shootings, but I don't know, Trev. I'm assuming I, I, not. I can't remember that as jumping out at me, so I don't. I can't remember it. But but see, uh, that, that's an interesting other sort of part to this, which is and it, like the two books that I've got up here, which are unfortunately out of camera. Yeah. So dark emu, just because yep. I got given it. Well, yep. I've read, I've read little bits of it, I'm sorry. But True, True Gert, I have read more of. And that's by a historian who's doing a lot of good research. And he's also making a bunch of fairly pointed remarks about some of the historians, especially in Tasmania, and looking at the settlers' interactions with the Aboriginal people down there, where there's some historians that are very conveniently glossing over a whole bunch of obvious problems about how the settlers were treating the Aboriginals in order to kind of say, oh, well, the Aboriginal people were dying out in Tasmania anyway, because that suits that narrative. And that's, this is like, if you wanted, there's probably separate books, Tom, on covering the real stories behind, you know, the the various success the successive attempts to wipe Aboriginal people out in various parts of Australia, but yeah, I don't think mm. it's in. So I guess in summary, I'd say I think the left abdicated its responsibility. I think that there was plenty of smoke. That there should be a strong suspicion of fire. That if it was any other topic, the left would have investigated it and that they didn't in this case because they felt uncomfortable they felt uncomfortable in doing something that would be seen as a criticism of of indigenous people and 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 I I get that they would be scared to because I know in this podcast when we are quite specific in our criticism of ideas that people then try and conflate that into a criticism of Indigenous people in some sort of racist way. So you Mm. have to speak so carefully and and really give a long preamble and all the rest of it so that you can't be misquoted or misconstrued. And so I get it that the left would have been scared to tackle the topic, but the importance of truth in that we need to understand how the Indigenous people really operated because it will help us understand our solutions today. And also if we're confident about the truth and that there is fact-checking of Indigenous stories, then when somebody tells a story about massacres in Tasmania or other events, we will have confidence that that is actually a true story and is not just some other beat up by some bleeding heart lefty who's made up stuff about what white men did to Indigenous people because that's the natural response of white people to go, oh, I hope we weren't that bad. You know, let me find a reason to say we're not. So if there's not legitimate fact-checking going on, then people lose confidence in the system. I feel like you're making you're talking about some fairly big groups as they're as if they're homogenous. I agree with but it's a prince it's a principle. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I agree with what you're saying there. The only the only difference that I would say is I think that it is 
you know, there were probably a mixed bunch of reactions in different parts of mainstream Australia. And certainly in, some, in you know, mainstream Australia, the, the non-academic parts of mainstream Australia, they probably just, you know, looked at it and said, well, either I agree with it or I disagree with it. And either, you know, therefore everything is in it is true or I'm just going to deny everything. The academic parts probably said, if we criticise this, we must do it rigorously and with documentation and therefore that's a two-month, you know, two-year project, which is why we have books now and not, mm. you know, if, if someone had rushed out a book in mm. three weeks of Bruce, Bruce Pascoe, I would question that more than I would question Dark Emu. Yeah, but we had on, on, on world affairs and, and other topics of discussion in our society, we don't always wait two years for a book to come out in order to say, right, we can start criticising that idea now because here it all is. Like we don't when there's... I think we're subject to biases in everything. Yeah. But, but you're suggesting that the left hesitated, delayed and didn't criticise because it was waiting for the authoritative academic no, I response. Would, I agree with you that a lot of people on the left that might have had some doubts mm. still didn't want to say anything either because my charitable view is I'd rather see the overall project continue uncriticised than add to the mm. volume against it, and your maybe more critical view is they're, they're afraid of being lumped with the critic, critics. But either way, I, I agree with you there on that rather than a oh, well, this isn't a settled issue, we better wait for the academics in their ivory tower to come back to us in two years. Mm. Mm. Well, Making Paul, sense? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I don't know what you, I don't exactly know what your position <laughs> is. I don't know. I, I, well, I mostly I, uh, agree with you. Yeah, yeah, That's what, wrong. Where, where have you disagreed with me? What just, where, where is my approach I, in I've any way wrong? Okay, where I've disagreed is I think... Pascoe's motivations we have different views on. I'm prepared to concede him more possibility that he is quoting correctly in places, even if maybe it's selective. And I guess the thing that I feel like we've touched on but we haven't really explored is, you know, you're talking about you're basically contrasting the noble hunter-gatherer view versus the noble farmer view of Aboriginal people and kind of there's a hybrid of those two somewhere in there and some people are seeing one aspect and some people are seeing another. And I'm No, interested... I'm saying Pasco is only person who sees the agricultural view and it's an and it's an a total misunderstanding of Indigenous life to... I'd, I'd have to read more yeah. because I got the impression from some of the, like, some of the reviews that I saw of, like, the critique, the book that you keep on mm. talking about that critiqued Bruce Pascoe, where they said that there were semi-agricultural practices, but they weren't 
storing grain. They weren't processing grain in the same way. But, you know, they were like big places where they were grinding wattle seed and things like that. So they were clearly clearly collecting a lot. Yeah, that's that's the gatherer part of... And some of that could be... That's the gatherer part of hunter-gatherer where you gather seeds and you mash them up and create a paste or whatever. So and that's and not so a, you, that's not an agricultural that's side a, where you where you intentionally sow seeds and to some extent monitor or care for them and you return to then reap the benefit of what you've sown that that just did not happen. The only things that mm, you know the sorts I, of things that they would acknowledge would be things I, like where they would. There might be a tuber and rather than taking the whole tuber, they would leave part of it knowing that that would help it regrow quicker or, or things like that. So, yeah. so, so the two things you've said but so far, I mean, two things, those, those, you know, that's not, that is, that, that's just leaving a couple of apples on the tree for the next time. That's not agricultural practice. Well, see, it's certainly yeah, not what yeah. Pasco was trying to claim. He was claiming a, 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 a seeding and a and a and a tending and a growing and a harvesting of what you'd sown. That's what he was claiming. So you've said two things. You've said mm-hmm. one, yeah. you're more charitable about Pasco's intentions, yeah. in that he wasn't, and and I'm less. And then you've said, well, there's kind of two sides to the story in terms of how much agriculture and whatever there was, and I'm just saying no, there's really just Pasco's side. I don't think there's two. Okay. I don't think there's a we, I don't we differ think, on that. I don't think there's a midpoint between two branches of thought here. I think Pasco's way out on his own and the rest of of science is at a completely different point. So okay, so that's where we differ on those two. Yeah. Do we differ anywhere else? Don't I think, think that, that so. Yeah. The but I would be interested in maybe this is a talk for another time mm. to to discuss. Let's say we let's say we go with your view and we say that the Aboriginal people have been mostly hunter gatherers. They've shown very little signs of organised agriculture. They've just li- literally left berries on the tree, you know, the, the bush or... That wasn't an uh, example in like the that. book. I, that was one I made but, up. Was, yeah. yeah, but they've left partly, like partly cut tubers, I think, was the example or, or whatever. So, yeah. yeah. And, then, you know, there's probably any number of examples of that. Yeah. Or, um, or, so or mostly hunter-gatherer. Yeah, or indeed the area they're in, the wildlife has depleted and they've moved on to other game-rich sure. areas. Most commonly. Where does that leave Aboriginal people in the 21st century with, you know, how do we recognise that as a historic part of their culture but also say we are, we are one, we are, we're going to care for you or care about you, we're going to, you know, try to you know, close the gap, all of those sort of things, if... And my because part of my concern, and I'm not saying here that Pasco's approach solves this because it probably doesn't, but part of my concern is if you if in some of those examples where you say you know the, the canoe example I'm particularly thinking of here is if you say if those people say we are unwilling to 
learn new practices because we don't have the story for that in our culture yet, then... That, uh, that wouldn't have been a conscious thought. That wouldn't have been a conscious right. decision. It, it would have been more a not even contemplating the building of the canoe because there just wasn't the story to go with it. Those other people have a story for the existence of the canoe. We, we don't. We, we don't. So it, it, I don't isn't, see it. Isn't that, I mean, that, that it, it, sounds like a, the same kind of justification. Thanks, Dad. Thanks, Don. It wasn't, but it, it, it wasn't. It wasn't a conscious, up brass band instrument. It, it wasn't as simple as a conscious decision. We won't build canoes because uh, we don't have a story for it. But that but is, if, but that I, is the actual was, effect. What if it was the same kind of thing as a as a Catholic priest saying, you know, you know, the the biblical story of you know of Adam and Eve and other you know, couples in the Bible mm. proves that therefore marriage is only between a man and a wife. You know, that that's. A kind, that's a, a story that is a framed narrative and it allows people to never have to say, no, you can't, you know, George, you can't marry Philip because it's not in the Bible. It's, it, it has framed your thought patterns by those stories. Hmm. Is, you're seeing my parallel here? Yes. I don't get where you're heading, though, I, because I'm, I gave that example because I, I found it I found it increased sympathy for the inability of Indigenous people to sim- assimilate when Western civilization arrived. So that that's, that, a, and- that's a complicated that that. That to me is a very complicated one, and I'm really reminded, of, you know, that you know, in New Zealand, part of the reason that they had the Treaty of Waitangi was because the Maori tribes were effectively able to fight the British to a standstill and say, "You cannot have our our territory." And unfortunately, that didn't happen on in Australia for a variety of reasons. But the Treaty of Waitangi then was broken by the British, so, you know, we didn't even hold to that. But there was no treaty which allowed, which allowed us, you know, in, the, in New Zealand, there was still the process of the sort of state assimilation and the, you know, forced phasing out of, you know, Maori practices and the, what's the, the name of the language? Anyway, but was you know it so it's kind of maybe it doesn't matter whether you have a treaty or not but i don't i don't think the idea of the aboriginal people assimilating into australian culture was ever on the table in in a meaningful way i think it was basically put as we just, you know, we, they will assimilate with us and then we won't have any black people at all. Yeah, but, you see, people looked at Indigenous people and went, why don't they just, why don't they just adopt our ways and, and what's, what's their problem? So, and, well, people still ask that today, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so, so I'm, Pasc- 
the whole point of this is that the second book that critiques Pascoe gives a much better explanation of the Indigenous thought process that made it so much harder for them than the Pascoe thought process, which was that they're ready for a sedentary agricultural, agricultural lifestyle. But, when that we get into- but that wasn't on offer. We, we had, when, when you know, but, the British came in but, 1788, what yeah. they said was, Terra Nullius, yes. it's ours, you don't get any. Of course. They never said, here's the treaty in which you get that bit over there and we get, the, of, this, of get, get this bit over but, here. But when you're looking at... Which trying, would have still been meaningless, but anyway. But when you're trying to explain behaviour and you're trying to look forward and you're trying to... And part of that is, is a sympathy and an understanding of what's happened to people. To fully grasp what happened to people you need to fully understand what their thought processes were. And Pascoe misrepresents Indigenous thinking. And in a way, that would actually lessen sympathy. But the complicated thing with the whole issue is, just moving on beyond Pascoe now and Dark Emu and that, is when it comes to reconciliation, and this will have to be a different topic, is, okay, having established that terrible things were done, it was been extremely difficult for Indigenous people at the time and, and a great injustice. Now we are 10 generations down the track. How much of guilt and privilege transfers through generations? That's the, a, a difficult question that I've got a view about and, and, and that's, that's the next step is... Mm, it's really mm. having acknowledged something that happened at that time and understood it, how that then is dealt with now and do we continue to see ourselves as different people or do we see ourselves as the one people and do people of today with some Indigenous heritage inherit some powers from previous generations and do white people inherit some from previous generations? That's the tricky question and again, yeah. it's sort of circling back to why people were reluctant to criticise Pasco. Is there's a sense of sympathy, a sense of the oppressed, a sense that you don't want to criticise the victim in any sense. So when the victim says, "I think the solution is special rights for special people," there's a reluctance to say, uh, "Hang on a minute, don't think that's a good idea." And hmm. so that's again where. I would say, you know what, I, there's a, a long-term problem in, in trying to maintain a segregated society. So that's a different Thank argument you. entirely. Those, yep, those are, those are really good questions. Mm-hmm. I'd love to talk about them sometime. I am interested as well, just reminded me, I actually saw here we uh, had a copy of a, Think of part thing on the week from the weekend Australian criticizing Dark Emu. It was by one of the authors who's I think you mentioned her before, double barreled surname is an Aboriginal woman, but was pretty scathing and compared it to the wonderful story of Helen Demidenko. Yes. Um, and it made me wonder what what you've made me wonder is how long did it take? for people to rebut Helen Demidenko because I seem to recall a similar situation. There was that initially sort of outpouring of sympathy of 
how, what a terrible thing for your you or your family or whoever to have gone through. And then a few little voices came out and said, hang on, this doesn't quite make sense. And they were shut up, but gradually the 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 cries against her became louder and louder until people basically disproved the whole thing and she was sort of thrown out of the celebrity books. How long did that take? You, yeah, I remember. I don't remember. So but she I remember was a novelist. Well, she, she wrote a novel but claimed to have written it from her own perspective as a certain ethnicity, I think, was was what happened there and then it was claimed actually yes. you're not that ethnicity so you have stolen an identity when you wrote this novel i think is what it was yeah. so look yeah. uh, I'd, I'd have to yeah i'd have to I'd, look it up I'd, on one of the many internets i have here yeah i don't know <laughs> i nah, i don't have a strong feeling that there was a sympathy and a hesitation i, I can't be sure i, I don't know but in any event, hmm. I think we've... The, and the other, the other, Jack's kind of reminded me because he's commented that he feels some guilt mm. just being human and knowing other humans did it is enough. And I I also sort of wonder here, you know, it may, I think a couple of episodes you talked about, or maybe I sort of in another com- context, but the sort of punching up and punching down problem, if... If, if, say, an Aboriginal comedian comes on and makes fun of white people, the white people in the audience, which let's face it, probably the majority, is basically going to have to take it on the chin at that point, right? Yeah. So we kind of accept that that person is allowed to make us feel a bit guilty and a bit offended and we say okay, well, I'm going to have to stomach that because that's part of this process too, right? I'm sorry, I'd have to hear the more, I'd have to hear more of the example of what it is. Yeah. I mean, there's a a spirit of comedy in Australia where you, you know, to be picked on is is a form of, uh, love, if you like. The more you bag somebody, the more you actually like them. So sure, it would depend sure. on and the context. Could, well, you, and you yeah. could it could come in that mm. context, it, right? Yeah. It it could be, yep. you know, as someone stand, doing a you know, stand-up routine mm. and saying, look, I love you white people, but really you guys are useless. Like you can't dance or something or you're no good at basketball? Is that, like, is that or, what we're saying? Well, or? you know, you, you can't even find out your way out of the bush, right. you know, can't survive out there, you don't know what foods to eat, you know. Right. You know making a, a joke of us being white mm. in, and in a way that might or, you know, yeah, look, the stage. The, all these things don't even exist, and that's hilarious. Yeah, you know. The stage is an, a, an artificial environment. You know, you go to a theatre and you say, I, I accept and I want to be transported into a, a scenario that is going to be created here. So, so that's part yeah, of attending the theatre. I can also see some theater. people storming but, but out. Your point is that you know. a white guy couldn't go into a black audience and start bagging black people. Is well, that what I, you were going to say? Or Even even if their audience was entirely white, yep. a white person making jokes about Aboriginal people today yes. would be torn down yes. 
and thrown out. Yes. It wouldn't, they wouldn't last two nights. Sure. They wouldn't get to the second night. Yeah. And that's the difference between punching up and punching down. Yes. But my point was that it doesn't mean that just because you're making fun of the majority, the majority says, jolly good then, love that, keep on making fun of me. You know, no, sometimes it's actually going to hurt. Mm. Sometimes we're actually going to be sad about that and sorry and want to change. And so, you know, we have to be prepared. I, I think one of the problems that I see in some of this debate, and I certainly see it in the way that the Uluru Statement from the Heart was just absolutely dismissed out of hand and was you know, ridiculed by Barnaby Joyce, who's apparently said he apologises for those comments, but anyway, was, you know, it was so absolutely sort of how dare you say anything about white culture, we're going to throw that whole process out the window. You know, it, the, these people are afraid and they they put these things as, oh, you know, this will mean a third House of Parliament or this will mean that Aboriginals people can take you home. All it, It's fear, right? And it's that fear that is pushing the hatred in the in the right wing people. They they are afraid that if they're mocked, if they're offended, if someone says, "Well, you're guilty for this," then that's offensive to them, and that's why they're pushing back. Okay, so there was a proposal at one point for some sort of additional veto oversight going through an Indigenous council of some sort as well as both Houses of Parliament. Is that what you were thinking of when you were talking I, about I don't remember yep. the... I don't remember the that whole particular debate, mainly because, it, it, you know, the, the conflicting views of what people were claiming you know, the Uluru Statement of the Heart actually meant or how it would be implemented or whatever. You know, it all seemed to be... So I'm just reading the... There were some really beat-up kind of views. So I'm just reading the Uluru Statement from the Heart here and it says something like, we call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. Makarata is the culmination of our agenda, the coming together after a struggle. Hmm. So the the idea that the question or the, the... the idea, if I remember rightly, was you know, put forward by people like Barnaby Joyce was that this voice to parliament mm. or voice was going to be some you know, amazing power that would have veto over everything and you know whatever, and mm. that was fear. Yeah, but it also could have been just a sense of injustice. Like people, What's the people, difference? people could object through a sense of injustice that, like, just that's just not right. I don't think we should be creating commissions or groups based on on racial ethnic grounds. So people could have been, um, I'm not fearful. I just find that distasteful. So they didn't have to be fearful to object to it. It could have taken quite an. But as far as I can see that 
Uluru Statement from the Heart isn't saying it's going to be a voice to Parliament or anything like that. So where I'm saying well, fear well, comes we... is in the interpretation of okay. those words as being something that they're actually Yeah, not. but where it says we seek constitutional reforms to empower our people. So whatever that means, uh, small or large, I've got a problem with that line. So I think that that sets up a different category of person based on racial, ethnic, hereditary lines and now I'm not saying that that is veto power or I don't know what power it has but the mere setting up of a group based on on racial hereditary lines well there is already a group uh in what's and and neither of us can be be one uh, yes but to empower that group with special privileges we the 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 people that have the power, the white men of this nation already have the privileges, right? Well, arguably, everybody has should have equal rights. That's my yeah, position. It's a nice theory. But well, it's it's more than a nice theory. It's a correct theory. That's the aim. Anything other than that is a false aim. Oh, I see. We tra- well, no, I see. We tra- we're straying into critical race theory territory. So yes, yes. So go on. Do you want to? So so critical race theory. I'm trying to get my head around it. Are, are but... we taking a lot more time than we need? Yeah, yeah. Should be. Uh, just, there, do you have any g- other g- things g- to do? No, just give me, give me, give me a. So so what your critical <laughs> race theory is? You can have. Let, let, tell me if I'm right. You can have equality in your laws where on the face of it people are treated equally, but system works in such a way that it discriminates against people because of the system rather than because the laws are actually overtly discriminatory. Is that, is that kind of yeah. what we're getting at with, with this? Yes. Yeah. So the answer yeah. to that is fix the system and have equal laws. So if your if your unequal system is causing a disparity and a discrimination, even though your laws are equal, then you don't make the laws unequal to fix the unequal system. You fix the system. But how do we well, how do you fix the system? Well, that's not to be answered in in a simple podcast where we're at the end of two hours. But but, but, but I'm yeah. saying that's the approach to take is to look at what is, if you are claiming a systemic problem, then you should be able to identify what that is and, and deal with those systemic issues rather than trying to backward engineer it through unequal laws. So I... I agree that that's the right approach in theory. Mm. And the problem that I see, and this is you know, particularly, it's particularly, you know, my, my classic example of this was the difference in penalty between crack cocaine and powdered cocaine. Right. Crack cocaine the penalties were 100 times worse. Like the the fines were much larger, the jail sentences were much larger. 
And just by chance, the black people were dealing crack cocaine and the white people were dealing powdered cocaine. Just, so just, just. That's, that's a law that doesn't discriminate. But the problem there. Can I just interrupt? You, just channel, sure. channeling your inner Aristotle, what was the purpose? Why, were the, why was the penalty so different between the two? Because that the because this was an unequal system, it was designed to unfairly penalise black people that the lawmakers already knew, you know, and that and this was assisted by the news media who talked about the scourge of crack cocaine and talked nothing about all of the nice white people snorting lines of cocaine. But the the, the you know the, the law does not have to mention race once if the thing that it penalises is already racially differentiated. Correct. But I'm just curious with the example you've given as to what was the justification for a different penalty for those two different substances. They they must have had because some... Because crack, crack cocaine is the scourge of the streets and the news media are talking about it and look at those poor people, we've got to save them, so we've got to make the penal, penalties harsh. Right. So it was... Okay, so it was evident that there was just more overdoses and more hospitalizations from that rather than the it other. Didn't even it, have to be, it, it didn't even mm. have to be more hospitalizations and overdoses, and I don't have right. any statistics here. Right. All there needs to be right. is a beta. Right. Okay. Is for it to be made to be seen to be a problem. And so that's a tricky example because ultimately yeah. I just think all drugs should be legalised and so that would be an, an, I'm not the, sure I can agree with you on yeah, that totally yeah, but, that but, but the stories I've heard about addictions to crack methamphetamines and cocaine and particularly heroin these are not things mm. that you ever want someone to deal with even legally have you read chasing the screen no you should read it so it's a good book on, on addiction and the reasons why people are addicted and it also gives amazing examples of people who can actually function very, very well whilst on heroin, for example, if they're getting nice clean heroin from the government supply and they're not having to rob houses and, and they're not injecting themselves with sort of contaminated elements of it. So, sure. so that's an example where you actually, the problem is something else in someone's lives. Can we fix that? Where they then won't need the drugs, so that that feels like giving people so, all of the problems and then saying, "How about we find a solution?" No, that's really what is it that's driving people to drugs? Let's deal with that. Let's deal with the real issue that's at hand. But I just don't think the drug sure, one you've but given you don't need is to give people drugs in order to find out the pre, the reason that they might be wanting to deal with drugs. Uh, no, deal with the problems no, with drugs. For example, you might have people who are incredibly traumatized. They've had a really terrible, awful life. They've been abused as a child. They're dealing with harrowing things in their minds. And in order to alleviate their pain and suffering, they need to be on some sort of drug. So you give them a drug and then you start working with them to help reduce their need for that drug. But just yeah. see it as a, as a poor but, example of, of the critical race theory in terms of the systematic problem because I... I See, I, I sort of look at it and say what's more the underlying problem that's trying to be fixed here, let's fix it rather than the... 
Critical yeah, race and, theory would be, well, we're going to have this law but we're not going to apply it to black people because they have a particular social problem and so the law is there but not applying to these people. So the answer is I still think you have to have the laws being equally applicable to everybody and if you're finding that a particular segment of society is suffering more, then you have to say, why is that? What's going on sure, there sure. in that in that cultural ethnic group that is causing that, that problem? Rather yeah, than trying sure. to uh, trying to massage the law, you need to massage well, the problem. Well, so it, so here, you know, in particular, the you know the the objective for Aboriginal people has been recognizing recognition in the constitution specifically because the things that have been previously enacted by one government have been taken away by other governments. So you have to have a system of recognition that can that requires a much larger effort to remove than, than simply a change of government. And, and that's definitely... You know the the you know people didn't vote for Howard because he was going to tear down Atsik, but he did. He just made that part of his agenda. So now I'm leaving aside here what that actual thing in the Constitution means and what it looks like, because that is another you know another large and complex complex issues issue. But I don't think that writing a simple recognition of the existence of the Aboriginal people into the constitution, as of just a picking a simple example, means that our laws then all have to change or that we then write special Okay. So I don't have a I don't have a problem with a pre I don't have a I don't have a problem with a preamble that recognizes a historical event. Not a problem. And and lots okay. of people like me wouldn't. Sure. It's it's when there's a specific right given to a specific group because of their differences. So rather than trying to create equal rights despite the differences. Sure. And <clears throat> where I – but, again, I'm interested that you focus in on this idea that just by having a, a recognition of the Aboriginal people in the Constitution that somehow they're getting an extra right. Well, because well, sure it just said in the... Well, yeah, what are you basing It said, on? we call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. I, I saw that more than just a historical acknowledgement of history. I saw that as a of a power or special right of some sort. The enshrinement of, okay. of a First Nations voice. I don't. I don't so I don't know what that means. Yet. Neither do I. And but I, don't I, don't like the, I don't like the look of it. What? It smells to me like a special privilege for a select group that others don't have. So I am. So part of my argument here, to let me put this to you, and sort of thinking of that idea of punching up, maybe. For a time, white people are going to have to accept that there is another group that is pre preferentially treated, and that will that will help in some way to balance up the two hundred years that we've spent 
preferentially treating white people at the expense of black people. See, this gets to the intergenerational hereditary effect of of sin. This this is the original sin argument. Essentially, ah, this is this is. I this, see. Where, so you're coming from the atheist. Well, I'm trying to put it to you in those terms because you, as as potentially an atheist, I suspect, would have, would, would object to the idea of of inherited sin, original sin, as put forward in Christian theology, and that is kind of what is happening with the indigenous argument to some extent. Is that white people are are suffering the original sin of what was done 200 years ago and that black people today are acquiring hereditary privilege from people who had something done to them 200 years ago by virtue of victimhood. So rather than, Hmm. and and I have a real problem with that, so rather than looking at is this group part of that hereditary lineage and therefore they get these certain rights, I really just say, Who's suffering here? Who's suffering? What is your suffering? What can society do? I'm not interested in your skin colour. And, yeah. you know, I keep giving the example. I, 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 Jonathan Thurston, I'm totally Jonathan Thurston doesn't need our help. He is a privileged man. He single-handedly yeah. got a football stadium built that wasn't needed in Townsville. Like, so yeah. so it's, it's, it's not hard to say... Where is the underprivilege? Measure it sure. by objective criteria that exist today and say there's a systemic problem here for this group and let's do something about it rather than this group has inherited so something. You have to look at the present-day so, circumstances. So yeah, so are you in favour of your phone calls costing more to subsidise rural phone calls? Sure, if that's, yes. Okay. Yeah. Because we already do that, yeah. right? And likewise, postage yep. is the same. Yep. And there's a whole bunch of free market economists who would argue against that. Yes, but those, terrible people. Those are the, exactly the kind of things, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and provide incentives for remote communities to help them because... It's a big country and we want to be able to cross the country yeah. and have facilities and infrastructure there and it is going to cost them more and so there should be that sort of allowances made because of their circumstances that actually exist, not because they can prove some hereditary entitlement. Yeah, and and I would agree there because I also think the last thing we need is a kind of and this is where I am a little wary, like to come right back to this whole the question of whether Bruce Pascoe is actually an Aboriginal person or not. It feels really like someone saying to me, Paul, you're not actually allowed to have an English heritage. You know, even though that's something that I kind of believe in myself, you know, if some family over in the UK decided that, no, we don't recognise the Australian wapers. We're not, you know, you're not part of us. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sorry, but it's still my surname. You know, I'm still kind of attached to it. The idea, and this is, you know, what if you were falsely claiming heritage? What if you were claiming American sure. Indian and you just feel like claiming it? Should you be able to? 
Well, okay. So what if I said, I feel as a as an Australian, as a Ngunnawal man that lives in the, the Ngunnawal country, that I should be able to relate to that culture. I'm not claiming that I have any ancestry there. Yeah. I'm not claiming that I, I am, you know, able to speak for anyone else. I'm simply claiming that I have, you know, a connection to this land by virtue of the fact that I live here and that I agree with parts of the Aboriginal culture that welcomes people here. And I think there are some people, there would be some people on the right, and there would also be some people on the left that would say, no, you can't say that because you don't have this Aboriginal bloodline. You know, you're not connected to these families here. And, you know, apparently there is an actual argument in Canberra about between a couple of families as to whether which bits of Canberra are Ngunnawal, which are Nambri, which are another tribe to the north whose name is going to escape me, but, you know, all because of who's related to who and who's part of which family. And, like, that doesn't, this is, you know, it is those kinds of that, that would be a very that's that, it's a it's a form of having to discriminate right that would be a very strange claim the one that you're painting where you're saying i'm not of this tribe but i have a special affinity to the land because i i i am have an affinity with the tribe but i'm not part of the tribe i've never heard that argument before well, i'm not i'm not i'm not even saying this has to to be that I'm claiming to have any relation to the tribe. Right. I'm just okay. saying you as a citizen of the land have a special bond with it like a farmer would with his land. Sure, exactly. People would say great. Right. Go right ahead. And and yet I think there would be some people on the right and some people on the left that say, no, you can't claim that because you uh and I'm kind of with Jack here, it's a problem of labels, right? You know, but only object if you claim to be. But only object if it sounds, by the way you're talking, that you're claiming to be of an Aboriginal tribe and you're not. And people could easily get confused the way you're talking that you might be trying to say that. Okay, so that's only the people are going to say. Of course, somebody born and bred in a certain area is going to feel an affinity for that area. It's human nature. Nobody's going to object to that. It's when you, as a as a apparently white man, say. Oh, I'm actually of this tribe, and and the tribe says you're not, and yeah. then people are saying, "Well, what sure. are you doing?" And well, so I can see this working both ways. Mm. I can see some, you know, people like Bruce Pascoe who might feel that he has some heritage, and other people saying, "Well, no, we don't think that he has heritage because we get to say so." Yes, but the the thing that I wanted to write this to in relation to this the statement of the, from the heart and the the idea of a voice enshrined in the constitution mm. is in that case well who gets to decide who those people who gets counted as indeed part of that voice right it's a problem isn't uh, it and how yeah indeed indeed i'm totally with you here um, big problem we did a story years ago on this podcast about this american indian who was the only person left who could speak the tribe's native tongue, their native language, and the tribe booted her out. 
and said, actually, you're not part of the tribe. And she was the only one left who could actually speak the language. And, yeah. and that was it. And, of course, so, yeah. Hey, now I think, Paul, we have thrashed this topic to death. For an, enough. <laughs> Mrs. Mrs. Fist. Are you giving me? <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Fist will just say, what were you doing? What are you, two hours? She just won't believe it. So, so you know, Paul, it's, it's going to be abrupt, but I'm going to chop it off. And now no. I, in the chat room, it's it, it, looked, Thank you. it looked like there were Thank lots of good comments in the chat room and I had a real problem. I couldn't scroll up and down the chat. We're going to have to play with that Joe the Tech guy and see what I can do because it wasn't scrolling and I couldn't go back to them. As they came up on the screen, they disappeared, which is one of the reasons why I yeah. didn't really get in, back to people on things. So In Restream, so. it looks like if you yeah. If they go off, I haven't yeah. found. I haven't found a way to drag it up and down either. Yeah, so. and I thought I could previously, oh. but anyway, it might be. We'll play with that. Anyway, dear listener, it was another interesting show. It was a bit of a sad beginning to about Paul Twelfth Man, but that's just how things go, yeah. and and the show will evolve, and things will happen over time, and all just. I don't know where I'm heading with that thought, but anyway, look. Good to have you with us, Paul. Good on you, Rachel. Everyone else joining in. And I think it'll be Shay and Joe and I in this room next week. So join us then. Talk to you then. Bye. Good luck. Have fun. All right, Joe, send us out or I'll do it, shall I? In stream. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think is a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf, on their phone, and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon, and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do 
maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.